Hello, everyone, and welcome to Goodspeed Musicals in the Spotlight, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. My name is Michael Fling here on the artistic staff at Goodspeed, and I'm pleased to be joined by my tremendously intelligent colleague, the one and only Annika Chapin. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. I'm blushing every week. <laughs> I, you know, I got to try. I got to try to up it. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm doing okay. How are you? You know, the ups and downs of quarantine. Oh, yeah. But I'm, I'm doing great. It's always a pleasure to be talking about fantastic musicals with you. It truly is. It's the best form of escapism. So, speaking of great escapism, would you like to tell us what musical is in the spotlight this week? We are diving into the super classic musical comedy, perfect comedy show, 1950s Guys and Dolls, book by Abe Burroughs and Joe Swirling, and music and lyrics by Frank Lesser. And obviously based on the idol of Miss Sarah Brown and characters created by Damon Runyon. Oh yeah, we'll get into that, sure. I was say, it's a, there's a lot to digest there. And now we'll give you a brief refresher on what actually happens in Guys and Dolls with our segment, Remember. Remember. The show begins with a comedically choreographed sequence that illustrates Runyon's depictions of Broadway, where we meet Miss Sarah Brown, her grandfather, Arvide, and the Save Us All missionaries who attempt to convert the sinners of Broadway. Among them are Nicely Nicely Johnson and Benny Southstreet, two gamblers and associates of Nathan Detroit, the famed proprietor of New York's oldest established permanent floating crap game. But with Lieutenant Brannigan and the cops breathing down their neck, the only person willing to host the floating crap game wants Nathan to pay $1,000 for the risk. After a brief encounter with Nathan's fiance of 14 years, Miss Adelaide, who believes Nathan has stopped running the crap game, the gambling trio learn that Sky Masterson is in town and looking for action. In order to get enough money to host the game, Nathan bets Sky $1,000 that he cannot take Miss Sarah with him to Havana the next day, assuming that Miss Sarah would never accept such a proposal. Sky dutifully follows Miss Sarah back to the mission, where he invites her to go to dinner the next night in Havana in return for which he will provide one dozen genuine sinners at her upcoming midnight prayer meeting. She rejects his offer and his attempt at a kiss. Later that night, Nathan goes to the hot box to see the debut of Adelaide's new act. After the show, as she is telling Nathan about her long-suffering cold, which her doctor believes is brought on by her romantic woes, one of the hot box girls lets slip that Nathan is still running the crap game and Adelaide is furious with him. On Broadway the next day, we meet General Cartwright, who informs Sarah that the New York branch of the mission will be closing because they haven't been a successful branch. But Skye saves the day by suggesting that General Cartwright come to the prayer meeting the next night, and Sarah accepts Skye's previous offer to provide one dozen genuine sinners. A few blocks away, Lieutenant Brannigan almost catches Nathan red-handed as he instructs a horde of gamblers on how to find the game, but Nathan narrowly evades arrest by declaring it is his bachelor dinner, as he and Adelaide are going to elope. Adelaide is ecstatic at the surprise news and plans to be picked up at the hotbox the next day. Nathan's plan is almost a success until he finds out that Skye did in fact take Miss Sarah to Havana. After a bit of sightseeing in Havana, Skye introduces Sarah to Dulce de Leche, a sweet alcoholic beverage that she drinks in excess. After getting into a fight at the restaurant and trying to kiss Skye, which he turns down, 
They return to New York to the empty, quiet streets and admit that they are in love with each other. As Arvide and the missionaries are returning from an all-night march to recruit sinners, Nathan and the horde of gamblers pour out of the mission in the middle of the crap game. Sarah, guilty at having gone to Havana in the first place and certain that Skye took her there so the game could happen at the mission, breaks it off with Skye. Act 2 starts at the hotbox where Nathan has not come to pick up Adelaide as he promised. Because the crap game from the previous evening, which she doesn't know about, is still going on, albeit in the sewer. Skye, who is heartbroken over the incident with Sarah, goes down and decides to roll $1,000 against all the gambler souls that if he wins, they have to show up for the mission's prayer meeting. Skye wins. On his way to the meeting, Nathan runs into Adelaide, who is furious with him for not eloping that very moment, and believes he is lying that he has to go to a prayer meeting. Sky delivers all the gamblers right on time and leaves. General Cartwright is impressed by the success of the meeting, especially when she discovers that they are all there as a result of a bet, and she guarantees the mission will stay open. Sarah, overwhelmed by the turn of events and the goodness in Sky, leaves the meeting and runs into Miss Adelaide and confirms that Nathan did indeed attend the prayer meeting. The two commiserate about their rule-bending suitors and resolve that they will marry them first and fix them later. Time passes and we are once again treated with a choreographed depiction of Runyon's world and the two couples happily wed. And that brings us to Why God Why. Why God? Why today? where we talk about what the driving force of the narrative of the show is. So, Annika, what do we think the driving force of Guys and Dolls is, as much as there can be for a comedy? Yeah, it's tricky with comedies because they're a little bit lighter than uh, drama, obviously. So their motivations are a little bit more, tend to be a little bit more farcical, a little bit more scenario-based rather than character-based a lot of the time. Um, They don't quite dive as deep often. So... With this one, there's also two main romantic pairings, two major plots, a lot of different characters. So it's a little bit harder to say that there's one driving force that guides them all. But I would say the message of the show ultimately, which is said in the lyrics of one of the later songs, is you simply got to gamble. Everybody's got to kind of take risks, open themselves up to new things, uh, try something they haven't done before. I think that's sort of the message that, that that you come away with. So Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us a little bit about the origins of the story of Guys and Dolls. We can never go back to before. Certainly. 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 And we should do this entire episode with bad New York (laughs) cheeseball accents. (laughs) Well, you know, it's so funny. That's actually a great transition (laughs) to Damon Runyon's work because Guys and Dolls is based on a bunch of short stories written by Alfred Damon Runyon, who went by Damon Runyon, who was a journalist and short story writer. And we don't know him super well now. I think I know him pretty much only through Guys and Dolls, but he was super, super popular and very, very uh, influential in a certain style of writing which is most specifically portraits of New York life, specifically around Broadway and featuring characters like gangsters, hustlers, bookies, gamblers, 
Um, he really liked the sort of demimonde of, of New York, the kind of criminal underworld and, and the people who inhabited the, not the seedy side, because his stuff wasn't really dark in the, in the same way that we would consider it dark, but sort of the, the people that weren't often in the spotlight. And he had a very, very distinct style of writing and a very distinct language, especially, which was a mix of this kind of highly formal language and also this kind of fun slang, which you can see a lot in the show. So his stuff was so identifiable that Runyon-esque kind of became its own adjective, descriptive of this genre that was really his. Um, and his characters had great names like Joe the Joker, Apple Annie, Regret the Horse Player, or one of the ones that I love, which is the seldom seen kid. And they would just populate this world. So very, very influential and popular. Um, and he was also an interesting guy. He covered sports as well, especially baseball. And the way that he covered baseball actually really shaped how baseball specifically is covered to this day. And he also had a popular weekly column called as I see it. At the height of his fame in the 1930s, he was one of the most productive and highly paid writers in all of New York. Um, so it's really, he would have been a very popular, very recognizable name at that time. And these stories were full of fantastic characters. And interestingly, just on a side note, one of the things I loved about him that I learned was that he chain smoked and drank apparently 40 cups of coffee a day. 40? 40. That's what I read. 40 cups of coffee a day. And the other fact I love was that after he died, his ashes were dropped over Broadway by a plane that was flown by a World War I ace pilot, which was also totally illegal. But his ashes were dropped over Broadway, which he was always writing about. So I thought that was kind of beautiful. It is. And kind of gross. But it, yeah, it's also kind of indicative of who he is, though, in that world that he celebrates where it's like, yeah. oh, sure, like what these people are doing is illegal, but is it that bad? Nah, fun. Yeah, it it feels like something that the character his characters. Oh, totally! It feels right out of a a Benny South Street like thing for Nathan Detroit. Like you oh, can right. ab- I can absolutely see Benny and like and nicely nicely getting in a plane and scattering Nathan Detroit's Scattering ashes. ashes. <laughs> yeah. What is kind of interesting because what what I hadn't realized too is that a lot of what we consider that that style that gangsters the 1930s kind of dames and you know. I mean, obviously, it's a, there's a lot of noir in it as well, but a lot of that came from Runyon. A lot of that st- that language and a lot of that particular um, literary style. So he was really, really a, a influential guy. Yeah. So, and I actually thought about this. This is totally putting you on the spot. And yeah. I don't know that we'll even put this into the podcast. But when you're talking about it, like, who would you say is a contemporary equivalent to Damon Runyon? Like, who is someone as a writer that has influenced us in a similar way, or even just as a general entertainment pop culture kind mm-hmm. of way, like who is a contemporary parallel to Damon Runyon? Is there one? I was like trying to think if there's one, like my first thought was like David Sedaris, but I don't think David Sedaris has broken through quite the same way. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. Cause I feel like there's so many forms of, writing right now that to think of the way that Runyon created really identifiable characters to the point where like you could probably ident- you could read a Runyon story without a, a title on it and without a writer credit and know exactly who wrote it um, because it was always these portraits of very specific voice yeah the very specific voice and and this kind of person you know the gangsters and the the hustlers and the bookies and the gamblers, you know, like I, I'm trying to think of someone who is kind of a stretch. Like, this is kind of stretch and not the same thing. Um, but yeah. you said like someone that you don't necessarily know runs, you know, is 
I, I thought of Shonda Rhimes in a way that yeah, you know, has like totally remade what like uh, primetime melodrama can be. And so there are all these shows that have um, that have popped up that are in that like vein that are all her production company or similar. I feel like like or someone like a Dick Wolf, like a Law and Order type, yeah. like something like of that nature feels maybe. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because I was thinking of Kenya Barris, who created Blackish, um, and but I think we're going to the same place, which is that it's really sitcom writers who are doing what Damon Runyon did because it's it feels like the same, creating the world, populating the world with a, with a certain style of person in general and feels like television and specifically sitcoms is where we're looking at yeah because i also thought about like the office and parks and rec and that whole yeah. like genre of mockumentary that is now but like he did kind of establish a, an entirely new genre yeah that, that became ubiquitous yeah yeah i mean in terms of language i'd say maybe aaron sorkin sure yeah that's someone whose whose style of writing for characters is you can always pretty much tell a, a Sorkin piece because they're so erudite and they'll monologue about a topic for a long period of time and it will start with an instry an interesting inspirational kind of uh, underscoring. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> <laughs> the walk in circles, walk and talk. Walk and talk. We love a walk and talk. We, do. we love a walk and talk. But yeah, Damon Runyon is really kind of a proto sitcom writer in many ways. So the idea to turn it into a musical really came from producer Cy Fewer and Ernest Martin, who had just come off of their first musical production on Broadway, Where's Charlie, which was an adaptation of a little farcical play called Charlie's Aunt. That really is not something that is frequently produced today, although Goodspeed Opera House did produce it in the mid-2000s to much acclaim. But Where's Charlie really only became famous because of the star Ray Bolger and the song Once in Love with Amy, which was penned by the show's composer, Frank Lesser, who of course, ended up composing Guys and Dolls. So these two producers thought that Runyon's world was a perfect setting for a piece of musical theater. And they really actually originally imagined it as a very romantic piece that along the lines of South Pacific, ironically enough, which we have already covered on the podcast. So they brought on board Joe Swirling as the book writer and they convinced Frank Lesser to pen the score. And Joe and Frank get to working and it becomes clear to Frank pretty early on that Joe was probably not the right match to write the show. They had completed a first act and had raised quite a bit of money off of that first act and the beginnings of a second act uh, and had a score that Frank really was proud of and liked, but something tonally just wasn't clicking. The producers went to Joe with a deal. It's a really interesting kind of sweetheart deal in a lot of ways, but they worked out a settlement with Swirling, uh, who agreed to withdraw from the project on condition that he retained a diminished royalty and the right to read the final script and determine what billing, if any, he should get himself, which is kind of amazing to, to think about. So he gracefully bows out and they bring in a Burroughs who had never actually written a musical. He also went to high school in Brooklyn with Cy Fewer. Yeah, and like a bunch of people who are like super famous. There's like a list of people who went to this high school in Brooklyn, including Buddy Hackett, and I think even Michael Kidd. So because A. Burroughs had never really written a musical, they brought in George S. Kaufman to direct the show. George S. Kaufman, of course, the very famous playwright for his collaborations with Moss Hart and his own quite stellar directing career. Yeah, it's it's wild. I mean, George S. Kaufman is is one of the greatest minds in comedy probably ever. He run, won two Pulitzer Prizes, one for Up the Ice Sing and the play, You Can't Take It With You. And this was a fact that blew my mind. 
every Broadway season from 1921 to 1958, there was a play written or directed by George S. Kaufman on Broadway. 1921 to 1958. So a major, major force in Broadway, in playwriting, and also in directing. I mean, you can't have a better collaborator on your comedy show than George S. Kaufman. Incredibly prolific, but ironically, yeah. he did not really like musicals. He was much more into plays, and he would often, apparently during rehearsals and the crafting of it, be like, why are they still singing? Can't we get back to the story? <laughs> we should have a therapy group for musical writers who don't like to think of themselves as musical writers, because here's my thing, guys, get over it. <laughs> Whatever this like images that people have in their head that makes them think that they hate musicals, you don't, you love them, you're writing them, they're great. Can we just get over this? This is like every podcast, there's someone where it's like, and they didn't like musicals, but then they wrote one. It's like, oh. It's one of the greatest of all time. Oh, yeah. Oh, we don't want to write jazz hands or whatever. It's like, that's not what it is. Ugh. So basically, Abe Burroughs and George F. Kaufman retrofitted the story of Guys and Dolls to fit Frank Lesser's score. Lesser was really happy with his score. He really loved it, didn't really want to change it. Now, there were some tweaks and some cuts and things that happened over the development. But essentially, the show was retrofitted to fit the score that already existed, which is something that we only seem to do nowadays with jukebox musicals and things of that nature. It's quite different from how we consider contemporary development of musical theater. But obviously, look at what they created. So it's a very interesting example of an unconventional route to one of the great successes of all time. Yeah, I mean, it's a not so difficult thing because in a great musical, the songs are going to move the plot ahead and tell the story. And so when you're when you're talking about writing an entirely new book with the songs that you have from an older version, it's just it's an insane thing to consider. But they did a gorgeous, gorgeous job. You would never be able to tell. And kind of fascinating, too, that really this show that has become such a love letter to Broadway and to musical comedy was a mixture of these great Broadway veterans and people who had almost virtually no idea what they were doing in musicals or on Broadway, which really applies to the cast as well. Yeah, it's really interesting. They they had a fantastic original cast, but only one of them had ever been on Broadway before, which was Sam Levine, who was a seasoned and celebrated comic actor who was a, a Broadway veteran, but definitely not a singer, which was going to play into things later. Um, he was signed on to the show even before Burroughs started writing. So Abe Burroughs was able to write the show and write the character of Nathan Detroit with Sam Levine's particular style and vocal cadences in mind, really shape the character around him, which is a great boon sometimes for a writer when you have especially such a such a personality that can really define where you're going with this character. Again, as I said, he was really not a singer at all, and that caused a bit of trouble as they went along. He tried to leave the project several times, but uh, they ended up making it work so that he really only had to sing part of one song, and uh, he could do that sort of <laughs> and even wrote, they even wrote in things within the song to like help him get to pitch there's a hilarious story about him trying to find an a and he did it like eight times and on the eighth time he finally got it and everyone erupted and then like okay so do it again and then he could never do it again <laughs> <laughs> well and t tell the story about sumi i think that's so cool oh yeah, so in Sumi, they had written the song and existed, but then they wrote in the very famous right before Sumi, the call a lawyer and, uh, you know, a five note scale. And they added in that scale and that call a lawyer and 
just to try and help Sam Levine get to the pitch of sue me, which is hilarious to me. That is very funny. And I love, I mean, I love those stories too, because I think we tend to think of shows as things that are created in a sort of perfect vacuum where these writers are writing the show and then you cast it and the actors do it. But when you're making a new show, so often these things are shaped by the people that you have on the, in the room in the beginning. So speaking of that, to go back to who else was in the cast. So all of these actors really came from different worlds. Sam Levine was like the Broadway guy, the stage guy coming from the style uh, Vivian Blaine, who was the original Adelaide, was a movie actress. Robert Alda, who played Sky, was from the world of burlesque and before that from vaudeville. And he was also actually the dad of Alan Alda. I was going to say, most famously, the dad of Alan Alda. <laughs> yeah, the dad of Alan Alda. Many contributions to the theater world. Um, and the actress who played Sarah, Isabel Bigley, was a British stage actress. So it was really a kind of an interesting crew. And then the gangsters also had really varied backgrounds. One had been a longshoreman. And one of my favorites, the guy who played Big Julie, was a foul-mouthed stand-up comedian who apparently brought his own dice to the audition, which... Normally, I would not recommend, but seems to have worked for him. But it ends up being a detail that they put into the story because it matches a Runyon story about blank dice. And so that kind of ends up inspiring some of the changes that they made to the stories. When casting, Cy Fewer had a great line where he said that they were looking for, quote unquote, people with bumps, which means that they didn't really want a kind of shiny assortment of seasoned actors. They wanted people who had real personalities and felt distinct on stage so that they could populate this amazing world that Damon Runyon had created, which is obviously full of people who are distinctive. So it was from the get-go something with real character. Uh, and they they saw that through with the with the casting. So the specificity in casting really led to specific changes that were reflective of the performers in the show, as we've discussed. One of the biggest ones was a song called Traveling Light, which was meant to come after the oldest established and before I'll know, and really introduce Sky and Nathan to the audience. Lesser wrote the song in a mix of 3-4 and 5-4, so that the two smooth-talking gamblers could introduce themselves in their own kind of style and speed, but neither actor were really capable of delivering the material, particularly Sam Levine, so it was ultimately cut out of town in Philadelphia before it got to New York. One of the other big, you know, kind of famous stories about the creation of Guys and Dolls was Frank Lesser's tempestuous relationship with Isabel Bigley, who played Sarah Brown. The stories of their interactions differ a little bit, we should say, but one of the accounts is that Isabel Bigley was not singing If I Were a Bell to Frank Lesser's liking. He was not happy with how it sounded and grew quite frustrated that she was unable to take his adjustments and stood up on a ladder to be eye level with her and smacked her across the face, leaving everyone else in rehearsal quite stunned. She left rehearsal that day and they ended up trying to give the song If I Were a Bell to Miss Adelaide to sing, which was met with quite a lot of skepticism within the creative team and particularly Lesser's wife, who helped broker a peace between Frank and Isabel to where she was eventually given the song back. One of the uh, more dark and uh, deeply indicative of the Times story about uh, the creation of Guys and Dolls, I'd say. 
Yeah, it's funny. I, I don't even know if you can call that like tempestuous or brokering a piece. It just sounds like abusive. It just sounds abusive. I was trying to be nice. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because I, I read a different version of that story, which I hope is just a different version of that story and not another story where he had a problem because her voice would crack on All Know, which is a tough song to sing. And that after it, it did uh, one more time than he could handle, he just walked up to her and slapped her for that. So after which apparently he sent her a very lovely bracelet to make up for it. But I'm hoping that that this only happened once and the story has taken on two different versions. I'm hoping that Frank Lesser wasn't just smacking his leading lady regularly. De definitely a different time though. That would obviously not be remotely acceptable. Well, to and even the fact that they're changing Sam Levine's songs so that he's capable of singing them. But you know, when she has difficulty, she gets hit. That's a tough look. Tough yeah, look. that is a tough look. And a good point. The other interesting change was that they intended Bushel and a Peck to be the opening of act two, but after its immense popularity with the general public before the show's premiere, they felt they had to make it the first song that Adelaide and the Hot Box Girls perform. And Frank Lesser ended up pulling Take Back Your Mink out of his trunk of songs he used to perform at parties and rewrote the lyrics to be Take Back Your Mink, which there's a famous story of Julie Stein coming to see the show in Philadelphia and Frank Lesser saying, if you don't have any good rhymes for the word mink, don't come. A good old-fashioned Broadway story. So Guys and Dolls was quite a success out of town, even as they were refining the show. Audiences absolutely adored it, and it went into New York expecting to be a hit, and it absolutely was. It opened at the 46th Street Theater, today known as the Richard Rogers, on November 24th, 1950. It went on to play 1,200 performances in its initial run, which was an extraordinary run at the time, and went on to win five Tonys, including Best Musical, Best Direction of a Musical, Best Choreography, and statues for Robert Alda and Isabel Bigley for their performances as Skye and Sarah. And interestingly enough, Guys and Dolls was also awarded the Pulitzer in 1950, or recommended to win the Pulitzer, but ultimately they didn't give it to the authors because A. Burroughs was suspected of being a communist. And the committee felt that they couldn't award him the Pulitzer in 1950 because of the House and American Activities Committee and some of the things that were going on at the time. So they instead chose to not award a Pulitzer at all for the year, which is a sad blemish um, in hindsight because it is such a great show. And ultimately, they would go on to win a Pulitzer for How to Succeed in Business without really trying, though I think it does kind of feel like a sorry we didn't give it to you before award well, and frankly i i'm a little bit surprised that they haven't gone back and retroactively awarded it i mean because they didn't give it to anything else and it it's known that this was the winner why haven't they just corrected that and said we made a mistake and it's now the winner of a pulitzer prize yeah i guess it has to be just because they felt like they awarded it for how to succeed so why do they need to maybe there's some weird thing about that but many people have won multiple so it is an odd an odd thing. Yeah, get that musical Pulitzer listing up. Get it to 11 yeah. instead of 10. Since it was such a hit, it's not a surprise that there were lots of revivals, lots of different productions after the original production. Um, far too many to actually really go into here, but there's just a few notable ones that I spotlit. In 1955, which is not long after the original one, 
There was a shorter version in Vegas that featured most of the original cast, which I thought was kind of fascinating. We don't really think of Vegas now as a place that you're going to do a second run of a show, but how interesting that Guys and Dolls would have been a kind of Vegas entertainment at the time. Um, and there was another version in 1976 that was all black with Robert Guillaume starring as Nathan Detroit. That's interesting. There was a British production in 1953, not long after the original one, which was also a hit. And then in 1971, the National Theatre was going to stage it as their first musical, starring the artistic director of the theatre, Laurence Olivier, as Nathan Detroit. But unfortunately, Olivier wasn't in good health, so that fell apart and it didn't happen. But man, would that have been fascinating. I mean, you just think of this elegant, erudite Laurence Olivier as the complete opposite from Nathan Detroit. So I would have been fascinated to see that. Yeah, and interesting. I mean, it went into rehearsal the whole nine yards, yeah. and then it ended up not happening until uh, later. Yeah, they did finally do it many, many years later, but obviously not not with Olivier. And apparently, Laurence Olivier had seen Sam Levine play Nathan Detroit on stage and considered it one of the finest stage performances he had ever seen. So I think that's probably what inspired him. Still a crazy idea, though. And then it's impossible to talk about Guys and Dolls without talking about the 1992 Broadway revival, which was directed by Jerry Zaks and starred Nathan Lane, Faith Prince, Peter Gallagher, and Josie DeGuzman. It was, I think, one of those revivals that come along that is perfect. It was perfect. It was so good. It was full of these amazing colorful costumes by William Ivy Long. It was just... The sets by Tony Walton, which are like by Tony absolutely Walton. incredible. Yeah. I mean, cast just perfectly. I mean, I'm biased because I actually saw this and I remember it very well, but it's just, it's hard to imagine a more right on revival of the show. And I think it really did pop into people's brains as kind of the perfect production of Guys and Dolls. It got a rave review from Frank Rich, who obviously was not prone to giving rave reviews. And it really just defined the show for a new generation, I would say. And then after that, obviously, they've been um, more revivals. There was another one in London that had Jane Krakowski and Ewan McGregor in it. And then in 2009, there was another Broadway revival directed by Des Malkinoff with a cast that included Oliver Platt and Lauren Graham and Craig Bierko and Kate Jennings Grant. And that one was not as well received as the 1992 one. Um, it was not a hit. So actually, interesting enough, before... Guys and Dolls was even adapted into a musical, the producers had to get the rights from Paramount Pictures, who owned the rights to all of Damon Runyon's stories. And in exchange for the rights, they got first right of refusal over the film rights, should the show be successful. And interestingly enough, even though the show was a huge hit, Paramount turned down the opportunity to make the movie because they were afraid of the House on American Activities Committee and all of the communist Red Scare stuff. So they ended up getting a small percentage of the royalties and ticket sales. So Samuel Goldwyn actually ended up obtaining the rights to make the movie and kept saying he wanted to just remake the Broadway musical and put it directly onto film, except that's exactly the opposite of what they ended up doing. He was really insistent that Frank Sinatra should star as Nathan Detroit and Marlon Brando should star as Skye Masterson. They did end up keeping Vivian Blaine in her role as Miss Adelaide and casting Gene Simmons in the role of Sarah Brown. The movie adds a few songs for Frank Sinatra so that he can sing a bit more than Nathan Detroit does in the musical. And there are some really interesting stories about the blow-up fights between Frank Lesser and Frank Sinatra who ended up really hating each other and subsequently never working together again post the movie. So although the movie wasn't quite a reproduction of the Broadway show, it was still a huge success 
with its star power and everyone wanting to see Guys and Dolls. But ultimately, it's not a super great representation of what the musical is, both stylistically and in the casting department. And for years now, there have been rumors that there will be a remake of Guys and Dolls starring Channing Tatum to uh, tons of names that I feel like have been floated around that project. Yeah, but nothing has come of it yet, so we'll see. One of the fun facts about the movie, too, was Marlon Brando was definitely not a singer and allegedly had to record all of his songs uh, hundreds of times. And the studio actually stitched together his vocal performance in the movie, which he even said was really hard to lip sing to because it wasn't properly breathable um, because of the way it was stitched together. So an interesting kind of tidbit about Marlon Brando's voice is that literally the studio came in and helped and stitched together syllable by syllable his vocal performance. And with that, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside my time of day. What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. All right. So for the song analysis, we are going to dive into the song My Time of Day, which is Sky's song right before I've Never Been in Love Before when he and Sarah have come back from Havana and are now, it's the middle of the night, it's 4 a.m. and they're wandering the quiet, empty streets together. And you might be thinking, this is a strange song for us to analyze. If you can only pick one from the score, why this one? And the answer is, you know, this is such a loaded score. It's just got one gem after another. And a lot of them kind of stand alone and and they're all really fun and jazzy. And obviously you have kind of like top of the line character numbers like Adelaide's Lament, which I also considered doing. But this one is just a small little nugget. You probably wouldn't even really think of it as a song in the same way it's on the others are. It's almost like a little jazz portrait. And I just, I kept coming back to it because I think it gives us something so invaluable about Sky and shows us really who he is. So that's the one we're going to listen to. So if you want to give a listen to the whole thing, you can pause this podcast right now and go find the song itself, Spotify or on YouTube, or if you have the album, which I highly recommend. I'm actually not using the original Broadway cast album this time. I'm using the 1992 revival just because I love that one. And I think you can hear the orchestrations a little bit clearer. They've also made a cut to the song, which I think is a good cut. And so I figured for all those reasons and the reason that you can hear the dulcet tones of Peter Gallagher, the possessor of the best eyebrows in the history of the world, playing Sky. Um, So yeah, so if you want to listen to the song, go find the 1992 cast recording, give it a listen. It's about two minutes long, the whole thing, and then come on back. All right, so at this point, you've probably listened to the song or you're like, I know it well enough, I'm good. So let's dive in. So even before we have any words here, we've got quite a lot. We've got this wonderful jazzy sound. It really sounds like you might hear in a jazz club in the middle of the night after all the dancing has happened. It's just kind of quiet and melancholy and contemplative. And of course, we've got this brass instrument, very jazzy sound, but really subdued. I think this is a saxophone here, which is just giving us a little flavor of what's to come thoughtful and a little bit sad maybe this nighttime sound and it's a solo which is appropriate because this song is so much about solitude it's really about being alone with the city at this time of night when nobody else is around so it's kind of the perfect little introduction to what the song is going to be 
And then we have a little bit, this 1992 one includes some scenes, so I'm cheating a little bit because I get to do some scene analysis as well as song analysis. Thank you for bringing me back. I must have behaved very badly. No, you were fine. What time is it? I don't know, four o'clock. This is your time of day, isn't it? I'm not usually up this late. How do you like it? So peaceful and wonderful. You're finding out something I've known for quite a while. All right, so we get this little scene, and they've cheated a tiny, tiny bit. They've cut out a whole section of the scene that has Adelaide uh, at her bachelorette party, for lack of a better word. So the line about her behaving badly, I must have behaved very badly, is usually much earlier in the scene, but it's fine because basically they've kept all the parts that are just Sky and Sarah, so you get a good flavor. Side note, it feels like a lot of the cast albums of the 90s included dialogue in a way that the albums before and after didn't. But we get to see a little bit of this little scene. So... Obviously, in this context, she's gone to Havana. She got totally wasted. She got in a fight. She kissed Sky. She really just did almost everything you fear you're going to do if you're someone who doesn't ever let themselves go. And she kind of embarrassed herself. I mean, she, yeah, she just did. She went crazy a little bit. So if she came back from Havana and wanted to immediately go home and never think of this again, we would understand that. And frankly, we would kind of expect that from how she was behaving in the earlier scenes. She seemed like someone who was kind of uptight, who never let herself have any fun. She was really resistant to going to Havana, very skeptical of Skye and his intentions, rightfully so. But now we're seeing who she really is. She's way outside her comfort zone. It's four o'clock. She's back from Havana having done all this stuff. But instead of being uncomfortable and just like never wanting to see him again and pushing him away, she's really kind of considering this time that she doesn't usually get to see. She thinks it's peaceful and wonderful. She's definitely not what you would think of a mission doll, this sort of stereotype. She's not scared to do anything outside her comfort zone. She's not worried about judgment. She's not uptight. She's open-minded. She's able to find beauty in something that many might find dark or criminal, especially someone who's concerned with like religion and saving souls, etc. This is New York. This is Broadway at 4 a.m. That's, that's not a safe place to be, but she's comfortable. You know, she's really just seeing it for what it is, which is kind of the perfect opening for him to dive into, because as we're going to see, this is something very important to, to him. I think if she had responded in any other way and said, like, well, time for me to go home or like, oh, man, I'm going to, you know, 4 a.m., I got to go to sleep. It would not allow him to be as comfortable with her as he is. So even from this little scene that we get a little stuff. And now let's dive into the song. My time of day is the dark time. So even in this first line of the melody, it's so interesting. It's such an interesting kind of jazzy melody here. A really unusual interval there. It sounds like something you would hear at a dark jazz club when everybody's pretty much gone. It's kind of quiet. There's something a little bit melancholy about it. And it's a, an interesting melodic portrait of Sky, this melody line. A little bit contemplative, unconventional. There's something definitely intriguing about it, right? Because you, you don't really know where he's going with this at this point. It's not joyous. It's not sad. It's somewhere in between. And it's not entirely settled. Those notes are kind of jumping all over the place in a really interesting way, which matches what we know of him. He's not someone who really has a home. He travels around. And it's interesting, too, that the word dark 
gets that really odd note that you're not expecting, right? You don't think that it's going to go where it goes on dark. So it gives a little spin to the meaning of that word. It's not just technically dark, like it's late at night, or dark in terms of a time where crime might happen, which we might think of as four o'clock on Broadway. It's something else. It's given its own little spin so that the dark time has its own meaning within the context of the song. We really want to find out more about what he means by that. A couple of deals before dawn When the street belongs to the cop And the janitor with the mop And the grocery clerks are all gone And here we're getting a much more full portrait of what he's talking about when he's talking about this time of night. A couple of deals before dawn is just such a good lyric because it's his language. He's a gambler. This is how he measures time, right? In games, in gambles, right? In card deals. But also that line is so low and contained, a couple of deals before dawn. That's just kind of factual for him. It's not, it's not part of the illustration of what he's going to be showing her, which is, which is about to come. Because you see in The Street Belongs to the Cop and the Janitor with a Mop, it kind of leaps up into this other melody and into its own rhythm. You can kind of see him spotlighting these two different figures, giving each their own little portrait. And there's absolutely no judgment in either of these, right? The cops, as we've seen, aren't particularly friends of the gamblers. But for Skye, that's not even relevant right now. He's just observing, right? He's painting this beautiful portrait of the street belongs to the cop and the janitor with a mop. And it kind of hops around a little bit. It's like a brush stroke here, these, this beautiful melody for these lyrics. And then, of course, with the grocery clerks, it has this beautiful little sped up melody, right? It kind of loops around. The grocery clerks are all gone. It kind of loops around and, and picks up a little bit each time. So you can feel the bustle that's around when the grocery clerks are there, but of course they're not there because it's 4 a.m. So it, it's a nice little contrast as to here's what it would be, but it's not that. And of course there's this moment of stillness, total stillness right after that. So the song's letting you feel how empty the street is, but not in an uncomfortable way. When the smell of the rainwashed pavement comes up clean and fresh and cold. Oh, this part is so beautiful. This whole song feels so internal. It doesn't feel like this is the first time he's thought of any of this. It feels like this is what he sees regularly, thinks regularly. He's often awake at this time and he sees these things and this is just rolled into this beautiful enjoyment of this time. And it's so poetic. You can really hear and see and smell what he's describing here. When the smell of the rainwashed pavement comes up clean and fresh and cold. That's a very poetic lyric, but it's not self-consciously poetic. He doesn't think he's creating poetry. He's just simply describing what he loves. And we can feel it. It's so perfect. Comes up clean and fresh and cold. The rain-washed pavement. It's really nice. And of course, the instrumentation helps here. A solo violin for the rain, and then a muted trumpet for the clean and fresh. And then after cold, those two elegant chimes. The perfect illustration of cold. The world is coming to life for him. His world is coming to life in the instrumentation here. And not to mention that the he's describing what's technically right in front of us. We will see this street, you know, obviously it's on stage, so it's not really 4 a.m., but we're seeing the world that he's describing. He's not describing some hypothetical other thing that only he has experienced, 
but it's coming to life through his description, right? Through this instrumentation, through his lyrics, we're seeing it the way he's seeing it. So he's really an artist, he's really a poet. We certainly have never seen this side of him. And the street lamp light fills a gutter with gold. Oh, and then that line is so, so beautiful. It's, it's so different from what we've just heard, right? This kind of melancholy description of the rain and the, the fresh rain smell. This feels major, major key. It's joyous. It's glorious. Like you would hear in a church. It sounds like something you would hear in a church. It's the celebration. So he's turning something as pedestrian as a streetlight and a gutter into something that feels like it should be in a religious painting. Not to mention that he's talking about something that is valueless, light in the street, but he's talking about it as though it's the most luxurious thing in the world, that it's the most valuable thing in the world, which is so interesting because he's a gambler and we, we've seen him deal with money a lot, right? It's all about money. He's got $1,000. He bets sky high. We know that. But this is the only time we've actually heard him talk about something having this kind of value. There's gold in the gutter when the light is there, you know? Where he's assigning value in the world is where he finds beauty. And he finds beauty in the things that most people wouldn't even think to look at. Or they would look at it and maybe just find it ugly or normal or not worth looking at. So how could you not love this guy? He's just such a poet, really. I keep saying that, but it, it's true. It's, it's such an interesting glimpse to this side of sky. But my time of day, my time of day, and you're the only doll I've ever wanted to share it with me. So here, out of this beautiful kind of church sound for the street lamp lights fill the gutter with gold he sings a matched that's my time of day kind of big celebratory you can feel his pride in it right this is he's a part of this this is his world but then he repeats it quieter the phrase my time of day and anytime there's a repeated phrase in a song like this you have to ask yourself why here, it's not for rhyme or rhythm particularly. It's not just completing a verse or a phrase. So the fact that he's singing it twice has to be something more than that. And to me, I think that first one, which is so big and happy, is his celebration about being part of this quiet part of the night, right? He's a part of it. He loves it. We can feel the joy that he finds in this unusual time and place that most people wouldn't really enjoy. There's something kind of possessive about it and proud but then the second one sounds like he's reflecting on that phrase a little bit. Like maybe he's just heard himself say it. Now he's repeating it and really thinking about it in a way he didn't in the first one, which was a much more reflexive thing. So to me, I think the second one, the second my time of day, is the moment that he's realizing that this really isn't his time of day right now, right? He's realizing what he's about to say, which is to tell Sarah that she's the only person that he's ever wanted to share this with, right? This has been so internal, this whole thing, even though he's talking to her, it could feel very much like a, a soliloquy, basically, like something that we're just sharing this moment of him, a private moment, his internal thoughts. It doesn't feel performative at all all, right? It does not feel like something that he's saying to Sarah to try to get her into bed or to try to get her to go with him. We've already seen that side of Sky. It doesn't look like this, right? This feels like it's just his personal musing, his personal contemplating, and he's letting her into it. I think there's, it's no mistake that this sounds so personal because the song is telling us that 
he's letting her into this other part. And especially for him, this guy has been Mr. Slick, Mr. Too Cool for School, Mr. I Can Get Any Girl I Want to Nathan, right? He's been a lot, there's been a lot of bluster and a lot of kind of surface from him. But we've never seen this part of him. Nobody really has, right? I don't think any of the other guys would think that he he was going around finding this beauty in this late night scene. He's opening up to her in the most vital way. And she's seeing who he really is, this jazzy, little bit melancholy, a little bit unsettled, deeply poetic, private person. It's such a beautiful glimpse. And it's interesting. I think you can hear in that line, and you're the only doll I ever wanted to share it with me, that this isn't 100% great news for him. That line is a little bit jagged. The melody, it isn't really triumphant or beautiful, right? It's a complicated thought for him that he wants someone to share this, right? In the way that it is when you're a person who's deeply private and you're not used to actually letting anybody in. and You consider, you know, the, the people you date to be whatever. You can just get them whenever you need them and you, you don't make attachments, really. It's clear that Sky is not a person who has made attachments. Traveled all over. You know, he has a lot of kind of acquaintances, doesn't feel like he has a ton of friends. He's kind of a solo opera. And suddenly he's opening up to this mission doll, right? So that's a, a musical phrase that tells us how much this is new for him and how it's not entirely a good thing, right? He's, he's not entirely comfortable with the idea that now there's someone who he's let into his heart. And of course, right after this, he shares his real name he tells her that his real name is Obadiah, which I think is a great name. I think lots of hipsters will want to name their child Obadiah, especially fans of guys and dolls. But anyway, for him, you know, in this world where everybody has these cool gangster names, these cool uh, gambler names, that's obviously not a cool thing for people to know. So he's telling her who he really is after he's kind of shown her melodically and in his lyrics here in this song. And then he's going to sing I've Never Been In Love Before, which is going to be the kind of third step on the road to realizing that he's, he's fully in love with Sarah and she with him. But as is appropriate for a character who's been this closed and who's been this slick and self-contained and self-possessed, you know, it wouldn't really make sense if he just came back from Havana and suddenly sang a love song to her because we wouldn't buy it. We would think that he was performing for her to try to get her into bed or to try to win the bet, or for some other reason, right? Why would we not think that? Because he's told us before that he can seduce whoever he wants to, and, you know, he's a handsome guy, he's a slick guy. That's probably true. How are they going to show us that he is not who he says he is, that, that we can feel comfortable with him being in love with Sarah because we like Sarah and we want to know that she is safe, that she's not being played by him? which in some ways, technically she was, right? He took her to the Havana because of a bet. This is the way to do it. This is the way to do it. You give us this song, you show us this poetic, jazzy, slightly dark, unusual, intriguing interior. You have it be something that feels very much personal for him, that he's not performing at all. And then you show us that he needs like three steps between opening up to her to realizing he's in love with her. And we're seeing them all right here. This song, sharing his name, and then I've never been in love before, which is also not quite a love song yet. He's saying, this has never happened to me before, but now it has, right? Now I all, all I can think of is you. So it's not quite the, what we call the conditional love song in musicals, which is people saying, I don't love you, but if I did, it would be this, right? As we've seen like Carousel in Oklahoma. This is something slightly different. And it's just a great, great portrait of 
the real sky and it shows us also how he and sarah are well matched for each other right the woman at the beginning of this song who when asked how she likes 4 a.m a time she's never seen says it's so peaceful and wonderful is the right person for this guy who sees this time and finds such beauty in it right he has to be with someone who can also see the beauty in this unusual thing. They're well-matched. And her open-mindedness to new experiences is just like his open-mindedness to seeing things slightly differently, right? It's a really good indication that these two are meant to be together. The show is telling us in this very interesting, subtle ways how matched they are, even though it seems at first that they could not be more opposite. They're actually quite alike. And that's what you can do in a great little song like this, which again is less than two minutes long, but shows us so much about both of these characters, but mostly about Sky. And that brings us to one of our favorite segments, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the internal and external problems with guys and dolls or things that surround the show that maybe are a little difficult or don't quite make sense. So, Annika, obviously traditional gender roles play a huge part in what guys and dolls is exploring talking about and examining and critiquing and satirizing so how do you feel that has stood the test of time or is it something that we need to reevaluate well this is something that you do here leveled at this show i mean it's in the title alone it's guys and dolls it's about women and men a lot and it's very specifically about men who want to be free and don't want to be married or tied down and and women who it's portrayed as women who will kind of catch you in that way and and once you're caught and you're domesticated it's bad but it's so much more complex than that i think when you look at this script the script is better than it could be you know because they're dealing with runyon they're dealing with a kind of caricature world slightly larger than life and yet these characters are all really nuanced really complex it's just really not as simple as you know, women are the old ball and chain and men want to be free. I mean, I think the perfect example of this is obviously like Nathan and Adelaide are the comedy couple, really, even though they're sort of the central couple, which is a little bit unusual. Usually it's the other way around. What you consider to be the central couple is the romantic couple and the comedy couple is the secondary couple, but it really feels more like Nathan and Adelaide are, are forefronted here by the show which I would quibble with a little bit. I would say that they are still secondary characters, but that is something that like we, we were talking about in our prep, that it's one of those rare shows where you really can make a strong argument either way. Yeah, certainly Nathan is the, is the character you meet first. It's his desire to find a location for the crap game that's set up as the first question of the show. Sky really comes in as a, another character, but not, a, not the central one. So it's kind of an interesting thing. But yeah, so you have Adelaide and Nathan and their question of whether or not they're going to get married. So in Sky and Sarah, you have in some ways what looks like a stereotypical player, traveling guy. He he comes on strong with his, his talk about how he can get a doll whenever he wants one. And he, there's a lot of bluster. And then Sarah, who is obviously the missionary, uptight, kind of rigid, follows rules, is religious. So that pairing could seem a lot like it's, you know, the good girl who's turning the bad boy from his wandering life and the, the bad boy who's loosening up the girl. But when you look at their scenes together, it's a lot more nuanced than that. And what becomes really clear is that Sky actually is the romantic of the two of them. When they're both singing about who they want, who they think they're going to end up with, Sarah is the one who's defining her 
potential mate by he wears these clothing he looks like this sky is the one who's saying i'm gonna know i'll just see her face it'll be like that you know sky's the one who's more romantic sarah actually also really has a a real adventurer streak in her as soon as she goes to havana she's dragging him all over she wants to see everything she's got a real adventurous soul that i don't think she's been able to share so what's interesting about that duo is as much as it does seem at this outset that she's the uptight one who's controlled and constrained he's the kind of wild one who's who's wandering and going after woman after woman what becomes clear is she's actually the one who's got the more adventurous soul he's actually more of the romantic what brings them together is what they can find in each other which is actually the opposite of what it looks like they would need at first glance so that kind of complexity in that relationship really turns the gender roles right on their heads and underlines that these are two people who are drawn to each other not because it's a girl and a guy or because you know she's the good girl he's the bad boy but because they're two people whose desires and likes and interests are actually pretty well suited to each other they can complement each other in a really nice way obviously with adelaide and nathan you have something slightly different which is that they've been together for 14 years nathan's reluctant to settle down adelaide wants him to get married there's a lot of kind of spoofing of domesticity there but they're also fully realized characters as well they have a nice rapport with each other there's something a little bit more than just this kind of like yeah broads will bring you down also i think it's always interesting that you know both of the women in this show have jobs which is something that you don't often see in shows from this era potentially you know obviously Adelaide has a full life at the hot box she's the star of the hot box Sarah is a missionary they both have desires and dreams and occupations of their own they're not simply two women looking to lasso a man and and drag him home so I think actually even though it does sort of end up in a more conventional place where you know Sky has become a missionary with Sarah and goes by Obadiah now and Nathan has a cold because he's now in the sort of psychologically upset place that that she was when she couldn't be married. Actually, the relationships that are set up before that are really deep and interesting. So it, so it's hard for me to sort of throw it in the dustbin by saying that like, oh, it's another show that just portrays women as trying to land a man and men as trying to get away from women. I, I just I, I just don't think you can really put it into that category. Yeah, sure, it looks like that on the surface. But it, that's not the story it's telling, really, ultimately. It's it's really more interesting than that. And obviously, there's the song like Guys and Dolls, which is, is very much in that world. But that's kind of presented as more of a comedy moment. It's not really related to any particular characters. It's really, a, a in some ways, it kind of stands alone. Well, and it's interesting, too, when you talk about that specifically with the number of Guys and Dolls. Yeah. It starts with Benny and Nicely critiquing Nathan when actually the song doesn't apply to Nathan. Nathan is the one who's resisting all of these things. Yeah. It's actually Sky who really is the one that they're parodying in that moment, which is just funny and interesting in the way that that song is set up. But what you were saying earlier about the relationships and the more complexity, it goes back to part of that idea we talked about at the beginning of all this, which is that it's being open to a new experience that you may not be comfortable with yeah. or may be scared of. And ultimately, the four romantic characters or characters that are in a romance that we see and are examining are all scared of that certain level of vulnerability. Yeah. 
Adelaide feels extremely vulnerable having been engaged him for four, engaged Nathan for 14 years. Nathan feels vulnerable about having to give up the crap game and become a stand-up, honest, decent guy, quote-unquote. Sky is afraid to be emotionally vulnerable to Sarah, and Sarah's afraid to be emotionally vulnerable to Sky. Yeah. So if there is a central truth that goes down through the ages, I think, regardless of the gender roles, that we all can understand being fearful of being vulnerable within a relationship. Yeah, and I think that extends to the gangsters, too, when they come to the prayer meeting and are really kind of find something meaningful in a way that they're both they're all so reluctant to open up at all there's that funny scene and i think it's also true we we should talk about also the the havana scene which comes through sometimes because on the surface sky has convinced sarah to go to havana with him then he gives her these dolce de leches which are alcoholic drinks although she doesn't know that it'd be a wonderful way to get children to drink milk right. that's another fantastic line <laughs> Natural flavoring. Bacardi. Mm, it's very good. It's very good. I think I'll have another one. <laughs> Such a great scene. But yeah, so on the surface, that could look like the guy who has the uptight girl trying to get her drunk. But actually, and yes, technically he is allowing her to drink several alcoholic beverages without her really realizing that they're alcoholic. But she's the one who really goes after him and he very much resists. He... He does the opposite of take advantage of her. He very carefully takes care of her after this happens. So it doesn't accept her advances. No. She is advancing on him physically and he says, no, no, we're not doing this yeah, yeah. this way. No, she really, she's the one who goes after him and she rejects and he, he really pushes back and says like, I, there's that great line about like, all right, slugger. He calls her slugger at one point because she's gotten into this whole fight. You know, he, he kind of takes care of her and, and that's a scene that could have gone a very different way. And Really, honestly, this guy who we first meet, who's so full of bluster to Nathan and talking about how, you know, you don't get weighed down by a lady and how he just, he can have a girl wherever he wants one. We would kind of expect him to be a little bit dirtier, a little bit grosser in this scene, but that's not who Sky actually ultimately is. The real Sky is a gentleman. He just doesn't pretend to be one all the time, you know? So it's an interesting layer to Sky, but that scene again, is more complex than it, than it sets out to be. So yeah, sure. There's a little tiny question of consent there, but but not anything that really approaches non-consent in terms of sexuality or assault or her bodily agency. And now it's time for our favorite segment, our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we share some of our favorite things about each show. So Anika, in no particular order, what's your number one favorite thing about Guys and Dolls? The jokes. I gotta give it to the jokes. I mean... They're A-list jokes. They're A-list jokes. It was funny. We always reread the scripts when we're doing these podcasts. And I've read all of these shows before. And sometimes it, you know, it's not my favorite thing to read a script rather than to see it. But in this case, I just was having the best time. You just read this script and it's funny on the page. It's funny on the stage. It's funny to imagine the people who have played the roles bringing their own things to it. But it's also funny even without that. I mean, if you just had it read deadpan, these jokes are still so funny. I mean, just across the board in the script, in the lyrics, it is a very, very funny show. And that's very hard to do because we talked about on our I'll Drink to That in terms of comedies. Comedies often do not age well. Senses of humor is something that really shifts over time. And so a lot of the things that are heralded as the great comedies of your 
whenever that yore is, often are things that are not so funny to us. And then we have things like, you know, for a while we had a lot of shows that were about meta humor and things like that. I mean, it's it's really something that that cycles through our era. So it's harder, I think, to have a comedy that has staying power than it does to have a drama with staying power. But man, this just really still is a very, very funny show. And obviously it's not, it's different from something like Forum, which is a little bit more farcical, but but those jokes are funny. Part of the testament to it is the the Runyon-esque way that they write the show and how the style of the dialogue is yeah. so consistent and funny. It's perfect. It's perfect for comedy writing in so many ways. And we, you're right when we were talking about it, like as we were prepping, we had a full like 10 minutes where we were just like bringing up like jokes that made us laugh out loud as we were reading them when Adelaide first comes in and She's been talking about how like her boss doesn't want her to go out and get lunch because she's just going to go meet that cheap bum, Nathan Detroit. And Nathan says, well, what did you tell him? And she says, I'll meet whoever I want. It's, it's so, so funny. funny. Like, it's fantastic. It's fantastic jokes. So the one that was making me laugh was when Nathan's on the phone with Joey Biltmore and he says, "I hold on, I got a customer. And then there's just gunshots and the sound of like chains falling to the ground. And then he says, that'll be $8. It's so, it's and it's so good, good because it's funny, but also it's good to imagine Nathan on what you see is Nathan's face as he's listening to this with this guy that he's in danger of angering. I mean, just the stakes are really great. So, so I got to give it to that because it's just a joy. I'll lend you my getaway car, my Buick, my Buick. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that, but that too, the characters, I mean, Big Julie. I mean, it, it, there's, it, the jokes are the reason it's one of the great all-time musical comedies, if not the best. It's, just, it's so good. It's, it's a gift to a funny director, too. I mean, I remember in that 1992 production, every time Big Julie sat down, all of the other gangsters on the bench with him would do a little bump, as though he was so big that the, they were literally thrown in the air. You know, and that, that was hilarious to me at the time. I still remember it now. It's really, not only is it funny, it's, it's a template on which a lot more can be added as well. Absolutely. Oh, kind of, along similar lines, my one of my favorite things about Guys and Dolls is just Miss Adelaide, who is one of the great musical characters of all time. The lament is amazing. She's such a wonderful character with a wonderful heart at her center and her well-meaning nature and how much she loves Nathan despite all of his shortcomings and the whole fact that she invents this life for the two of them so that her mother in Rhode Island will will believe that they're married and not ask questions. And there's so much about her that I I just find incredibly charming. And and because of her charm and everything, when she thinks that she's about to get she's about to elope with Nathan and then he doesn't show up, like my heart breaks for her. And I feel so justified in her reading him the riot act during Sumi. And then but it's her journey, I think, is one of the most satisfying because she is so consistent through and through about everything, even her like want to seem intelligent, even though she is not the most intelligent. Um, it's just it's great. It's great stuff. I, I love. She's great. And I do think I mean, it's funny that you bring up the intelligence, too, because I, I feel like she's an interesting one that way. She could be really easily a stereotype of a dumb blonde, but there's so much more shading there, you know, with jokes like the, I'll see whoever I want, you know, you can really decide, I think, if you're an actor, how knowing some of those lines are. And she's got kind of some street smarts to her that were, that are separate from the book smarts. Is it really, you can do a lot with that part. Okay, hot take. 
who do you want to see play Miss Adelaide? Who would your dream Miss Adelaide be? Emily Ashford. I think she'd be absolutely stunning. I mean, there are tons of people who would be fantastic in it, um, but I think it's a shame we haven't seen an Annalie Ashford yet. I mean, talk about born to play that part. I mean, she'd be amazing. I would love to dreamcast. I would love to dreamcast Guys and Dolls. Yeah. Like, I think it, it's such a, because there is such life in those characters, there's so much you can do with it. Annika, what's your second favorite thing about Guys and Dolls? Yeah, my second one is Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat, which is just such a fantastic number. It's a showstopper in the truest sense. It pretty much always just brings down the house. It's kind of unexpected because it's a character that you don't really think is necessarily going to have a big moment like that. And yet it is just the most joyous, fun. It almost always has an encore whenever you see it. It's a great number. And I also just love the message of it too, which is even though it's kind of a weird story when you break down the actual part of it, it's like, is, is this dream that nicely, nicely had? Is it a real thing? Did he really have this dream? Is he just kind of spinning a story for the sake of the moment? That's a little unclear, but it doesn't really matter ultimately because what you're seeing is these very different worlds, all these gamblers and gangsters and these missionaries having the best time together. And there's something about that that is just the purest joy. And I just love that. And I, I mean, I, I have such fondness for all of the gangster characters. I think that Runyon really shines with all of those individual names, with all of those individual characters. So getting to see them kind of break loose in this way after they've been so resistant to this whole scenario is really just so much fun. So it's always a favorite and I love it so much. It is such a great number and it, in every production that finds its own way into it and its yep. own style, it kind of is the, Frank Lesser is the kingmaker of production numbers at 11 yeah. o'clock between this and Brotherhood of Man. Brotherhood um, of Man. I mean, geez, like those are the two, in terms of, I don't think that it gets much better in terms of production numbers at 11 o'clock. I don't think there no. is another show that, it, or another writer that is as good at that in the same way that Jerry Herman like owns title songs, like Frank Lesser owns production numbers at 11 o'clock. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And unlikely surprising parts. Like I think both of those numbers have a kind of older woman character who breaks into a huge, like yes. thrilling soprano moment there, which is always very funny, but yeah, definitely. I mean, you really can't, you can't top it. It's so good. So my second one, funny, our, our things end up going in similar kind of pairing things, which is not intentional. But my second one is Michael Kidd as a choreographer and what he created in terms of dance for Guys and Dolls, that uh, even without his choreography becoming required by licensing houses or required by estates or whatnot, he created such a wonderful world of dance that has allowed so many other fantastic choreographers to explore Guys and Dolls in terms of dance with some phenomenal dance arrangements and a profound influence on the show. And I think he doesn't get enough credit as one of the all-time great choreographers. Uh, he doesn't, for some reason, get grouped in with that A-list category often enough. I don't think. Um, so justice for Michael Kidd, because some of his choreography lives in the 1955 movie and you can see it and it's absolutely spectacular. So I'm, I'm a big fan of him, justice for Michael Kidd, but that's my second favorite thing. Yeah. And that connects to mine actually, which is Runyon Land. 
I think it's such an interesting way to start the show, both in terms of being a big old dance number that doesn't have any lyrics, really, because the first lyrics you get are in Fugue for the Tin Horns, which also could be my favorite thing because it's so brilliant and so funny and and perfectly Runyon-esque. I mean, they set up this Runyon world so perfectly at the top of the show. They really do. They really do. I mean, you really, and it's so specific in the stage directions, the the prize fighter and the this and the that, you know, it's it sends you the message right away that this is a world that is populated by characters, the kind of characters that it's going to be, the world it is, even though there's no lyrics, it's such beautiful storytelling and storytelling through dance and, and through music and just this really great illustration of the tone of the rest of the show, even without any words. And I, I think it's just, you know, even though we don't really know who Di- Damon Runyon is as much now, it really does justice to the world that he created uh, so beautifully. So Runyon Land is great. Which also weirdly ties into my third favorite thing, which is the score. And Frank Lesser capturing that world of Damon Runyon through the brilliance of his lyrics and the bops that he created. I mean, true, I would say true bops that he created in the score. There really is not a bad song in the bunch which we talked about a little bit with some of the other shows we've explored, but that's really, that is really rare that you, especially in the case of Guys and Dolls, there really is not a song that is a skip over track because they're all so wonderful in their own way. And the eclectic nature of the score, it hits basically every type of song style that Broadway does on a certain level and the brilliance of some of his lyrics like the permanent floating crap game and the psychosomatic symptoms in Adelaide's Lament he really does a masterful job using that Runyon palette to to fill the world with his lyrics and subsequently the the songs so there really is nothing in Guys and Dolls that is wasted or extra it is all there with a reason, there with a purpose, and probably going to get a laugh. It just, it's expertly constructed. It really is. And so well balanced too. I mean, you, there's so many stories and characters going on at the same time, and you never feel like you've spent too much time away from any one of them. It's really a masterful, masterful piece. Well, and I, it's funny to you say that you bring that up too, because I almost made one of my favorite things. Every main character almost interacts with every other main character. And just when you think the show is done after Sit Down and Rock in the Boat, and you realize that Miss Adelaide and Sarah haven't really had a moment. And then suddenly it's like, oh, we finally bring these two ladies together. And then they have this fantastic scene and song where they, they share their frustrations and their inner desires. It's a, it's, it's brilliant construction. And that brings us to our final segment, Corner of the Sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. Where we talk about what sets this show apart from everything else in the canon and why it is regarded as a classic. So Annika, what is the corner of the sky for Guys and Dolls? I think it's kind of the ultimate musical comedy, really. I mean, if Oklahoma was the first real musical in the way that we consider a modern musical to be, I think Guys and Dolls really marked its territory as as a comedy. And it's hard to improve upon it. I mean, you can change that, but it's so perfect. It's so perfectly constructed. It's so funny. It's just a brilliantly put together, still funny comedy all these years later. Right. And 
that deriving from the brilliant characters that are drawn in the book and through the staging and and how that translates into the luscious, beautiful, incredible Frank Lesser score. Um, absolutely. That, that absolutely yeah. captured ears and hearts across the country and and is why it's a mainstay of Broadway today. Yeah. And it's also, I think, it is a love letter to Broadway, uh, although it, it doesn't really have anything to do with theater except for the hot box, which is sort of a theater. But like, it's a love letter to New York. It's a love letter to the street Broadway. It's a love letter to the kind of people who inhabit the place where theater is made. And and so even though it's not really a love letter to theater itself, it's such a celebration of a particular New York character that we just love even more in theater. Well, so. it's, it's interesting to me you bring up Oklahoma because Oklahoma is such a love letter to America and to mm -hmm. what we stand for as a country. But Guys and Dolls is a love letter to America. It's a very distinctly American style that is so specific to us that I think it's part of the reason I find it so funny that the show is so loved in London. It's because it's such an American kind of beast in the way it yeah. attacks everything and its brashness and its upfrontness. There is a the the flip side of America that it is a love letter to that like Guys and Dolls could only take place in New York. You can't really like put yeah. Guys and Dolls into like Manila and it's going to work. Like it is so distinctly that Americana of the post-industrial revolution, movers and shakers, this is where the magic happens type energy. Well, that about wraps it up for our deep dive into Guys and Dolls. It's been such a pleasure to relive it. And I hope this podcast has inspired you to go listen to to the recording and rediscover the show. I would recommend the 1992 revival. It's pretty great. So Annika, would you like to tell the people which musical we will be putting in the spotlight next episode? Why, yes, indeed. Do you hear the people sing, singing the song of Angry Men? It is the music of Les Mis. That was not a great segue. <laughs> I am excited to dive in. It's a score that never ceases to bring a tear to my eye and definitely one of the all-time greats that ushered in a new era for Broadway. Yep. It's uh, l'original mega musical uh, Les Miserables, if you want to say it like a French person or Les Mis, if you want to say it like an American. <laughs> You want to say it like a normal person? Like a normal person. See you next time, everyone. Bye. Bye. This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. Our podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit www.goodspeed.org. See you next time!